Welcome to episode 64 of the Infectious Historians podcast. I'm Merle. And I'm Lee. It's June 3rd. And in today's episode, we're going to talk about a time period that we actually haven't discussed much on this podcast, Lee, which is the early modern period, in particular the 18th century. And our guest for today is Zachary Dorner, who's an assistant clinical professor in the University Honors Program at the University of Maryland at College Park. So part of my university, although given COVID, we've only had the opportunity to actually chat once on Zoom so far. Zach's first book came out last year with the University of Chicago Press, and it was entitled Merchants of Medicines, The Commerce and Coercion of Health in Britain's Long 18th Century. In the book, he discusses medicine's codependence on plantation agriculture, long-distance trade, financial markets, and colonial warfare, and how the new ways in which medicine were produced shaped the making of medicine, treatment, and healthcare up to the present. Zach has also published articles in the William and Mary Quarterly and Journal of British Studies, and he's also written for public audiences, which is something we like to highlight here on the podcast since it's so important and often undervalued. So he's published in the Washington Post and the Boston Review, among other places. Zach has new projects on the history of medicine and money in the age of rationality and early modern chemists and coiners across the Atlantic world. Zach teaches classes on some of these topics, such as making money in the Atlantic world and intoxicated commodities and globalization in the early modern world. So welcome to the podcast, Zach. Well, thank you for having me. It is a pleasure to be here speaking with you both today. Thanks. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. So Lee, I know you aren't a big fan of the early modern world. I often talk about time periods you like on this podcast, although I think listeners probably by now know I'm being quite sarcastic. But I thought I would note that the early modern period apparently is not your jam. But be that as it may, I think this period is key because among other points I wanted to talk to Zach about is the changes that happened during the 18th century in terms of global capitalism and that how that really shapes the histories of disease in medicine, right? We spent a number of episodes talking about changes to medical ideas, right? The so-called bacteriological revolution or germ theory. But we haven't done much is unpack the structural changes before this time period that helped spread many of these ideas so easily. So, you know, Merle, I will begin by saying that I'm a bit shocked that you're at least sometimes sarcastic. I mean, I could not have understood that myself. But I guess you have a good point about laying the groundwork for the changes in the 19th century that you, Merle, are, seem to be obsessed with for whatever reason, and those changes that we've discussed in several past episodes on this podcast. Now, I think this brings up a point that we've talked about with historians working on earlier periods, which is innovation. Now, many of these historians are quick to point out changes to medicine before the 19th century, but what is just as important, maybe more so, are the broader changes to society that then shape medical ideas. And this is something that Meg Leia mentioned in her episode about how closely ideas about the soul are tied to medicine in the Carolingian period. So this seems like a similar approach here, but again, speaking about global capitalism and medicine. So before we move on to the interview with Zach on these topics, How are you doing this week, Merle? So over Memorial Day weekend, we went on vacation to West Virginia with my wife's brother's family. So we had four kids under five in a really nice house in the woods. But the downside, it was about 50 degrees Fahrenheit and raining for most of the weekend. So 
four kids that young in a house is always a challenge. And I'd just like to point out, Lee, did you know that I'm also one quarter West Virginian? No, I did not know that. And I'm actually impressed now. Even more impressed that you've experienced nature in your own way, which I guess is just go to a house in nature and spend time in the house. Seems very New Yorkish, I'd say. Well, this was me being in touch with my West Virginian roots. But in any case, we got to see somewhere different during COVID, which was interesting. And so, you know, here I would say about 75 to 80% of people are still masked in grocery stores, for example. In West Virginia, it was a little lower, but it was still probably 40, 50% of people. Um, so that was interesting to just kind of see the differences in contrast. And we have a few more trips planned that I think I'll fill you in on, Lee, so you can follow my life in detail and, you know, all your jealousy. But aside from my West Virginian roots, Lee, maybe leaving aside high politics for today, if you can, mostly because I think between the time we tape today and the time this episode comes out next week, who knows what's going to happen? What have you been up to? So actually, politics have been pretty big here, especially yesterday. And of course, this will change until this episode is released. But so far, at least, it seems that the prime minister that we've had over the past 12 years is probably going to be replaced. So that's big news. Other than that, today, actually, a few hours ago, we had a gay pride parade here in Jerusalem that I attended together with my wife and daughter. And this was really the major, the first major outdoors event other than demonstrations and protests that we've went to in quite some time. So it was refreshing to do that during COVID, really. I mean, we're kind of over COVID, but still. I'm going to assume no one was masked up at all anymore. Yes, nobody was masked. I mean, maybe like a few individuals were. But now in Israel, which has a population of some 8 million people or so, I think the number of new infections per day is in the tens or even lower than that. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense then. And Zach, are you in College Park right outside DC or have you taken this occasion to gallivant off to Hawaii or somewhere else like that? I am still in my house in Hyattsville, Maryland, just down the road from College Park, a little bit of buffer between where I am and the university. But things are you know, changing a little bit around me, right? The masks are coming off in the neighborhood. People who are walking around outside aren't wearing them as much. And depending on where you are, there is one of these 17-year cicada broods that's out right now. So hearing them, seeing them really does mark sort of change of time in ways that have kind of stood still for a while around here. So how many cicadas are we talking about? I mean, how many do you see when you go out? Do you see them all over the place? You hear it more than see it. It's more they come up, they burrow up out of the ground. So everyone's lawns are aerated. So that's a nice sort of ancillary benefit. But they leave their exoskeletons all over the place. So you sweep them, there's piles. But then they fly up and they live in the trees. And at that point, they're making their sort of omnipresent, undulating mating calls. So it's a constant oral presence rather than sort of a visual one at this point. Yeah, it's actually interesting. I mean, I'm just... I don't know, 30 minutes down the road from you, 35 minutes. And I see some of the exoskeletons and I see some of the cicadas, but I think because we're basically, you know, on a sandy, no trees, water area, they're just not nearly as many in Annapolis compared to College Park from what I've heard. You know, I'm an expert biologist after all. <laughs> but 
maybe on that note, we can start the interview. So I opened by mockingly about the early modern period, but maybe you could just tell our listeners, when does that time period cover? And then we can proceed from there. Sure. And it is funny to me that you start off this interview with a question that under different circumstances is like a trap question you might ask someone in a uh, exam setting or at a contentious conference or paper talk or something like that. But, you know, since we're all friends here, I will give it a shot. So the early modern period can be defined in a lot of different ways. Like a lot of these chronological temporal boundaries, it kind of is arbitrary and depends on from what perspective you're looking. So for my work and a lot of my colleagues, right, in these fields that I work on, I'm coming at this from sort of an Anglo-American Atlantic world perspective. So it depends. It would look different from a French perspective. It would look different from you know, an African perspective, from a Chinese perspective. So we do have to take that context into consideration here. But from my perspective, it really is a period sort of beginning in the late 15th century with some of these European voyages that are sort of, quote, exploring right, other parts of the world, sort of expanding the horizons of European thought and stretches into the early 19th century, whether that's around 1807 with the closing of the transatlantic slave trade from an American and British perspective, or the 1830s with the emancipation of slavery across the British empire. But it really encompasses this period spanning several centuries where really big things are happening, right? We have the expansion and the really sort of beginning of large scale global colonial warfare. We have sort of the mass migrations forced and otherwise of millions of people across the Atlantic world, right? Over 10 million African captives crossed the Atlantic world during this period, let alone, right, scores of impressed sailors and military personnel, other kinds of sort of settlers and migrants, as well as changes in finance, right, in money, in investment, national debts. And this also is a period where we have a lot of, you know, big intellectual movements, right? The quote, scientific revolution, the quote, enlightenment, the reformation, a lot of revolutions, really, both sort of in terms of thought, as well as in terms of political ones. And of course, sort of on the more personal level, this is a period when Europeans are encountering new sights, sounds, smells, tastes. And the flip side of that really is, right, environmental change, exploitation, and violence sort of in other locations, right? There's always sort of a flip side to this coin. Right. So I think that's a good overview of what the early modern period is, this very diverse, very exciting period in which so much is happening politically, socially, economically, and so on. Let's focus on medicine. And maybe you could begin by telling us what medicine is like before the specific period that you study, right? So the 18th century. So how does medicine look like in, let's say, the centuries before that? Yeah. So, you know, I argue that there is a shift in how people are thinking about and considering medicine in the 18th century, but it's not too dissimilar from the kinds of medicine, the kinds of ways of thinking about disease, the body and health, that have really reigned in Europe for centuries, right? I'm sure they're not going to be that unfamiliar to your listeners who have, you know, heard people from across this spectrum talk about medicine and health in these periods. But before the 18th century, and even into the 18th century, people think of health as a question of balance, right? Everyone's body was comprised of the four humors, right? Four sort of essential fluids 
that are always in balance in one's body. And everyone has a unique balance of these humors, which is one's complexion. And so one's complexion varies based on is affected by all sorts of things around you. It could be your mood. It can be the position of the stars. It can be your diet. It can be a sexual encounter. It can be an injury. It can be the temperature outside the climate. And so when everyone's tailored specific balance was off, that would lead to ill health, pain, feeling bad, to put it bluntly. And medicine's role here is to rebalance everyone's particular composition of humor. So it's not medicine before this isn't about purchasing something over the counter and having it take away pain or quote, cure an ailment or a fever. It's about rebalancing what's going on inside of one's body. So it really is sort of thinking individualistically, everyone has a unique balance of the humors and thinking in terms of multiple inputs affecting the body. And it's not really as simple as take this for that, which is sort of a change I identify sort of moving forwards. Yeah, so that's a nice way in which you set up the groundwork. And as you pointed out, the first question, as I sometimes say, is always the quote unquote easiest, but it's never the easiest. But maybe we can turn to now what does change. So you've briefly hinted at this, that there are ways in which, you know, the individual person kind of seems to become less central, perhaps. What changes during this process in medicine? And a large part of what changes in medicine here isn't necessarily you know, new medicines or new techniques or new understandings. I would say it's more about the business surrounding medicine and the effect of empire on considerations about medicine. So shortly, right, because of the aforementioned sort of movements of people, good and ideas across the globe in this period, right? The early modern period is one of increasing global connectivity. This requires treating people, Europeans, you know, captive Africans, et cetera, right? Employees going to South Asia as part of the East India Company for a wide range of ailments in locations far from home, right? And these exigencies of doing that require a more streamlined and convenient approach to medicine, right? If you think about it with a ship of the line filled with hundreds of British sailors, it's really time-consuming, difficult, impossible to do in a battle for the one ship's surgeon to go around and sort of check everyone's complexion and give them personally tailored advice or talk to them about their diet, right? And instead, it's much more convenient to give them a medicine, right? A specific piece of medicine, a remedy of some sort, put in a bottle or rolled into a pill to deal with their ailment directly. And so I argue that it really comes out of convenience and the needs of empire that we start moving away from seeing everybody as fundamentally unique and requiring tailored individualistic advice to seeing everyone as fundamentally similar and interchangeable. And the disease is actually, or the ailment is what is being determined. And then you would prescribe a particular thing to deal with that. But isn't that a rather radical idea? I mean, it's essentially a notion that we're all the same, right? That people are individual idiosyncratic differences are kind of meaningless with regards to health, right? So, I mean, yes, maybe it's not that radical when you think about two British sailors, right? But once you start thinking about other 
types of people, so to speak, other races of people, other ethnicities, other sexes, other ages, maybe as well. So that does seem pretty radical idea. So how does that fit into really 18th century thought? You're rightly, it is extraordinarily radical. And that's why this idea of universality, right, at least as it comes to the human body, is pretty ephemeral. Just taking what you said and expanding upon that, right, it is an incredibly radical proposition that a preparation of Peruvian bark to, which is sort of a useful febrifuge to fight fevers, right, which are sort of the boogeyman, right, in colonial locations, a sort of a plantation owner in Barbados would take a pill made from that bark, as would an enslaved person on Barbados, as would a indentured servant, as would a sailor, right, arriving in the port of Bridgetown, newly arrived from London or another one of the Caribbean islands, right? And expanding that, right, that a poor person in a London hospital would take the same medicine as a, you know, a wealthy merchant in London. So that's exactly kind of what I wanted to pick up on, which is clearly there's ways in which people promote during this time period, later time periods, even to this day, biological differences in terms of races. So if they're on the one hand saying everyone's the same, you all get this pill, how does this play into that dynamic that people are making these claims of biological differences based on race? Certainly. And it's important to, I think, mention that this is the early modern period, the 18th century, right? This is the period where we have so the emergence of what you know, we can imagine or perhaps picture in our heads of these sort of mature, complex, you know, slave societies across the Atlantic world, right? We have these large-scale sugar estates on Barbados and Jamaica, right, which constitute massive markets for exported medicines from England at this point, Britain at this point. And, right, we have to think about it in terms of these large institutions, right? They're becoming mass markets um, for medicines. But, this isn't the 19th century yet, even though, right, it seems like you would like to talk about that on this podcast, Meryl, but it's not the 19th century yet. And these hard and fast ideas about sort of inherent biological race, right, or inherited characteristics that are tied to skin color, right, as a visual marker, that hasn't hardened into the ways yet that are often defined as scientific racism, particularly in an American context in the 19th century. So those ideas you know, perhaps use an inappropriate word or a lot sort of, or a not as apt word, but are still sort of fuzzy and blurry and porous at this time. And medicine actually plays a big role in helping to harden those categories, particularly in the Caribbean by the end of the 18th century. So thinking for a moment then, right, let's say there is an outbreak of fever on a plantation in Barbados, sugar estate in Barbados. And the plantation doctor arrives from Bridgetown bringing a number of remedies made from Peruvian bark, chinchona, right, to fight that fever. And they are given to the plantation owner and his family, as well as many of the enslaved men and women and children who, you know, work on the estate. And given these ideas of, right, sort of take this for that and this sort of bulk approach to medicine, one might assume that those remedies would work the same and therefore sort of alleviate the fever on all those people in a similar fashion. But that doesn't, of course, take into account the institutionalized violence, deprivation, right, trauma, malnutrition, et cetera, right, 
that are creating differential health outcomes on plantations during that period. So that expectation that a medicine will work the same fundamentally leads to different outcomes in a plantation setting, in a slave society, because of all these other factors. And that apparent disparity, or that disparity to people who are committed both sort of ideologically and financially to upholding these hierarchies, that becomes really strong evidence, right, to put into medical texts and scientific journals that there is some sort of inherent difference between these people. Whereas in effect, it's actually more of a outcome, right, of cultural, social, economic factors that are at play, right, in these slave societies. So how much do you intellectuals and medical practitioners, how much do they care about this? Do they emphasize differences between people, between individuals and like their writings and so on? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole medical genres are emerging in this time, right? You know, first of all, sort of neglected to mention earlier that these medicines that are seen to work on the disease rather than on sort of someone's composition of humors are called specifics, right? Because they act on a specific ailment. So we have a lot of literature that's being written, right, by leading medical men in Europe at the European universities like Borjava, you know, in Leiden and in Edinburgh, right, on this topic of specifics. And there are whole sort of schools of thought that are trying to classify diseases sort of in a Linnaean fashion, right? Diseases sort of becoming this monster almost, right, that is attacking the body from without. Disease isn't sort of the function of sort of internal imbalance anymore. And, you know, transporting that to sort of the Caribbean, right, thinking about sort of manpower, labor, profit, right, are these driving questions at the heart of early modern empire? You know, so keeping people healthy is politically important, economically important, militarily important, and therefore new genres of writing called plantation manuals and military health manuals arrive to give advice to ship surgeons, army surgeons, plantation owners to this end. And it's in those kinds of texts that we see authors and members of universities starting to write about these perceived differences between people. Right. So you mentioned on several occasions already, you mentioned things such as profits, right? And economic interests. So who would work on this, right? So would regular doctors just decide to try and treat multiple people at the same time? I guess at some point they would start creating companies and creating some streamlined production of these medicines. I mean, how does that work? And maybe when exactly do these doctors change from individuals to companies? Oh my, that is a huge question, Lee. I will try my best to sort of keep it under control here. But there are a lot of prongs to that question right there. We can think about sort of regulation of medical practitioners in London in the colonies. We can think about sort of medical practitioners in the state, sort of in the military with the East India Company, right? These sort of state-affiliated large institutions. We can see new kinds of practitioners as sort of the traditional modes of regulating the medical marketplace are changing in London. We have increasing opportunities in the marketplace for new kinds of practitioners, people who aren't credentialed, people who don't have the equivalent of MDs, starting to get a foothold commercially in this market, making and selling medicines. And it's these people who are taking advantage of new financial instruments, right? As I mentioned before, this is a period of the financial revolution. 
There are national debts. People can buy and sell stocks, particularly right in London at the exchange. There are partnership agreements. You can buy things on credit. There are banks, right? So people working as druggists, apothecaries, and chemists are taking advantage of these financial instruments, pooling their resources, building fairly large-scale laboratories, and producing medicines for export and for use locally. So there are changes to the long-standing organization of sort of the medical hierarchy, which enables these manufacturers really to come in, gain a foothold in the marketplace, and start to both create and service these large sort of overseas markets for medicines. So it seems that a lot of stuff is happening at the same time, especially if we want to focus on, let's say, London, as you mentioned. But how is all this regulated? And maybe by who, right? I mean, how do you know? How does the state, the army, different individuals, other companies, plantation owners, whatever, how do they know that what they're being sold is actually effective at all? And do they have any guarantee? I mean, how does all this work? I mean, obviously more huge questions, but just an overview I think would be helpful. Yeah, totally. To put it really bluntly is they don't know these things are going to work and there is no guarantee, right? There is no sort of legal protections, right? Caveat emptor rules in the medical marketplace, right? There's no legal protections for malpractice or bad medicines or anything like that. As I alluded to earlier, there is some regulation of apothecaries and physicians, but a lot of the people making medicines don't have that kind of formal oversight anymore. And so the purity of drugs and ingredients aren't really regulated either. So there really is sort of a falling away of regulation in this period, which leaves a lot of it to the kinds of things that people who write about early modern trade and commerce talk about all the time, right? These issues of trust and credibility, which sort of enable long distance trade and sort of try to help mitigate risk, but it's always dangerous. There's plenty, a long list of sort of failures and bad medicines, right? I've read so many instances of someone packing a crate of sort of metallic salts poorly, them getting seawater on them and then exploding, right? Having a chemical reaction and exploding in the hold of an East Indian company ship, right? Which is sailing for months to factories in South Asia. So there are plenty examples of sort of things gone terribly wrong and it really remains personal. And the state plays a role. State contracts are one way, which are big money, of course, regular business. And there is some sort of accountability if we can use that term in that case. It sounds a bit likely, probably more likely, Zach, if you've ever gone on Amazon to try to purchase N95 masks and you get 90 different types and you have no idea what's actually good or not. And they all have like 5% of people that hate them or say that they're faulty or something. So I don't think we're regulated to daily is all I'm saying. And if I can jump in, I think the thing that is driving, you know, looking for N95 masks on Amazon, you know, earlier in the COVID-19 crisis and this turn to medicines, right, of oftentimes sort of dubious efficacy is this desperation, right? Mortality around the Atlantic world is high. I mentioned earlier these things, right, that affect health outcomes in colonial locations. However, right, death, you know, yellow fever, malaria, right, they acknowledge at the end of the day, they don't acknowledge, right, skin color or rank in these colonial locations. So people are afraid, people are desperate, and they're trying a lot of different things. So one thing I think it's been in the background, although you mentioned it in the opening segment, is new ideas about global capitalism, especially across the 18th century. You know, I think this is a very hot field post 2008, for lack of a better term. But 
what's the role here of you know emerging global capitalism across the 18th century that's driving or part of the process probably iterative you know building back and forth but you know how does that work well it is a hot field both in terms of its desirability but also in terms of its controversies so if you listen back earlier in this episode you will notice that i refrained from saying the word capitalism directly in the introduction i think that was your term but, but you're totally right i think right we're not talking capitalism right as many people are familiar with it today right we're not talking sort of late capitalist sort of financial capitalism you know post-industrial capitalism right vulture whatever sort of adjective you want to put in front of capitalism however I do think it is a useful frame for thinking about a lot of these changes in this period, right? If we think about these sort of emergent pillars of what comes to be understood as capitalism, we have the reliance on credit and debt mechanisms, right? Large-scale public finance to fund, right? Military ventures, which we know sort of hoover in demand medicine supplies at bulk scale, which is, you know, a boon for manufacturers, credit and debt right, enables long distance transactions to occur, right, which is a big part of the medicine trade at this time, overseas sales, exports to colonial locations, you know, founded on forced labor. And we also have, right, as I mentioned before, you know, captive Africans, right, enslaved persons across the Atlantic world, right, constitute a major market for these bulk medicines. And the transatlantic slave trade, the kinds of investments and sort of commodifying of human bodies that takes place during that, you know, centuries-long process is fundamental to, you know, the kinds of understandings and ideologies of capitalism that emerge, again, in the 19th century, Merrill. And again, also, right, global warfare, too, right? That is fundamentally tied to these kinds of capitalism and investment and violence that are emerging in this period. All of these facets, all of these pillars, right, both abet the medicine trade, but also, you know, serve to bolster it by sort of demanding medicines, raising issues of manpower, raising issues of value, and really sort of commodifying the human body, which is, again, sort of the destination for these medicines. So you mentioned these contracts, right? So it's contracts of different types, of course, state contracts and so on. Just to get a better idea of the scale that we're talking about, so what would be considered a large contract at this point? I mean, how many doses of medicine or whatever? That's a tough question to sort of make commensurable, Leon. I'm so sorry to say. We could think about it more in terms of sort of regularity, right? If we're thinking about if a medicine exporter in London is exporting to a handful of sugar estates in Barbados, right? those are large orders constituting hundreds of pounds value at once. But those are infrequent, right, taking into account sort of the transit time, the time for the remittance to be shipped back. It probably wouldn't be in, you know, silver. It would probably be in sugar or something, which then has to be sold at auction. So sort of the time from export to actually receiving that value is quite long. Whereas, right, thinking about having a regular contract to supply all of the medicines for thousands and thousands of people to the East India Company for its every trading season, right? The East Indian Company is located in London, for lack of a better word, right? They're good for it in terms of payment. And right, they have this infrastructure to take care of shipping for you. You know, and that's another interesting thing, too, is a lot of these medicine exporters, they assume the risk of the shipment until it reaches its destination. 
Whereas if you're selling to the military or the East India Company, they take possession of those medicines, assume the risk for shipping in London. So right, so you're done you know, much quicker and you get to see that return much more quickly. But we're talking about hundreds of pounds. I mean, to, yes. to use the number that, that you and mentioned we're talking, earlier. Yeah, thousands of pounds of weight, hundreds and hundreds of pounds value, which again, I have some more detailed figures on that in the book. But yes, right, this is magnitudes different than someone walking in off the street and deciding to purchase several pills or a tincture of rhubarb for sort of a bowel ailment, right? This is totally different. That change in scale and scope, right? Going from sort of handmade, local, you know, individual to sort of global in scope, massive in scale, requiring these infrastructures for distribution and communication and remittance, these bulk overseas markets, right? That's the real change here. Which is also completely impersonal. But maybe to take the other side of this comparison, could we maybe draw parallels between some of these early companies that you've mentioned and maybe present-day large pharmaceutical companies? There's two ways to answer that question. One is extraordinarily on the nose in that some of these early medicine manufacturers, there's a pretty bright line from them to today's big pharma, right? One of the manufacturers I talk about in the book, Plowcourt Pharmacy, right? Through a variety of mergers and acquisitions going through like the 18th and 19th centuries, right? They end up as part of Glaxo Welcome, which becomes right GlaxoSmithKline in the 20th century. So for that research, I was sitting on Plow Court in the 18th century. I was sitting in the sort of glass and steel shining global headquarters of GSK in West London in Brentford, newly promoted Brentford, if you follow English soccer. However, I was sitting there looking at these 18th century ledgers, right? and letter books sort of detailing these massive shipments to Caribbean plantations. I mean, so sort of the changes to trade following the American Revolution in what was their customer service cubicle area. It was a pretty huge cognitive dissonance there. Productive time, right? But kind of crazy. But all that is to say is, right, and now GSK, Plow Court supplied, right, these institutions, East India Company plantations that are supported by the state, right? Whether that's sort of keeping shipping lanes free from privateers, free from the French, or providing these contracts. And today, right, GSK and Sanofi were granted the largest contract from the U.S. government, at least at the time, for a COVID vaccine under Operation Warp Speed, right? So the state has still played a role, right? The relationship of these manufacturers to the state has remained, and even some of the players, right, at least as a germ, right, of GSK is still there. But I think on a more abstract level, sort of thinking about the kinds of large-scale investment, state intervention, and the sort of take this for that bulk approach typify these big pharma companies today. And I think there's changes to that that are occurring that I'd love to talk about moving forward. But I think this sort of approach, right, if we think historically, sort of the long term here, right, thinking of human beings as sort of interchangeable and thinking about medicines and a take this for that approach really is historically abnormal. Right, if we think about, you know, going all the way back to Galen and Hippocrates, right, in the classical period, right, human bodies are individualistic and unique. And this sort of physiological approach to sort of addressing what ails someone is the norm. And this idea of a bulk take this for that approach comes out of this age of empires in the early modern period and has continued to typify a lot of big pharma, right, up until today.
So to follow up on that, although I should briefly say that at least one member of this podcast is a Premiership fan. So I'm an Arsenal fan. Lee is not a soccer guy. For the record, Zach just made a face at me for being an Arsenal fan, but we'll leave that alone. Maybe he wants to respond with what his team is. I am a soccer guy, just like national teams, rather than like the Premier League and Champions League and all that stuff. I'm lucky enough to be a Premiership agnostic, so I get to enjoy everyone, but that doesn't mean I don't have some dislikes, which include Arsenal. I'll just leave it there. Yeah, we'll leave it there. But what I found really interesting about the story you've told us so far and really fascinating is it's one of these stories that once you unravel it, it's very obvious in the sense of like, why hasn't anyone pointed this out? Not to say it doesn't mean it's a great story. It's just one of those things that it's like, oh yeah, that obviously does happen as a change is what I mean there. So I'm kind of curious, do you have examples in which people see this change in approach happening, right? Within someone's lifetime? Or is it like, you know, you look at a document in 1700 and it says paradigm X. And by the time you get to 1800, it says paradigm Y. And so you can see that they don't match up anymore. And in between, it's kind of a little mishmash. Or how does that work, right? How fast is this change actually happening, I guess, is part of the question. The short answer is it's happening sort of at different paces in different times and places, right? So thinking about, right, Europe and then locations of the Americas and the Caribbean, right? There is different sort of levels of regulation, different demography, different access to your medicines, different sort of exigencies, right? Sort of colonial warfare, for example. But it's not a clear transition. And I'm not necessarily saying that, right, it's this sort of bright line, this like hard shift from, oh, my body is individualistic and comprised of four humors that make me feel good or not, to one of, oh my gosh, right, diseases are attacking me from the outside and I need to buy things over the counter for that. But that latter view right, is beginning and more strongly in this period, crowding out the other, right? If you think about medicine as iterative, right? This latter view is crowding out other health ways, I like to say, that people for centuries have turned to for succor and aid and, you know, the hope for health and recovery across this early modern world. So thinking about, right, we have the marginalization of a lot of sort of lay healers, right, people who are sort of collecting herbs in the countryside, still sort of valued in some ways, but right, we see the crowding out of these other kinds of practitioners, whether that's indigenous healers on plantations, whether that's sort of midwives in the North American colonies. I would say that the sort of pathways and avenues are starting to shrink and the diversity is sort of compressing rather than there being a sort of clear transition. And I think we see that backed up in the letters and the sources. More people are talking about specifics, more people are ordering medicines in bulk, but they're also still thinking about their bodies in terms of the humors and in terms of sort of porosity towards the elements and things like that. So it's sort of a blurry, mushy transition, but we do see a crowding out or sort of a lessening in sort of share of the pie of some of these other ways that people have looked to manage and their health. Right. So we've spoken about the manufacturers. We've spoken about the merchants. We've spoken about the people who end up buying bulk medicine. But we haven't really spoken about the people who have to take the medicine, right? And I guess that in some, maybe many cases, nobody really asked those people who are supposed to take the medicines whether they would want to take this particular medicine or not. 
But I guess that in other cases, they were free enough to choose whether they want to take this or not. And this obviously would have been a big difference for them, right? So instead of going to a medical practitioner and having some sort of very personalized experience with that person kind of listening to what you have to say and performing their tests and so on and giving you some specialized medicine, all of a sudden now you get some kind of flask with a liquid. You have no idea what that is and nobody can really tell you what it is either, right? So how do those people get convinced that this is the way forward? This is like the next new thing or the next best thing. Yeah, to go from there, right, thinking about, right, this, this liquid, right, in a bottle, right? That liquid, you know, could be an interesting color. It could be very fragrant or aromatic. And oftentimes, right, if we're thinking about an herb, a root, or something that is manufactured into a medicine, sort of preservation is a big part of that, right? So in what is a common mode of preservation, right? Distillation. So we're thinking about these elixirs, these tinctures, they are very sweet, right? They often use a lot of sugar or they use a lot of alcohol. So this is a time when sort of the European senses, and I like to talk about this while teaching, right? You know, early modern Europe is pretty drab and foul smelling. And we think about, right, these sort of imported commodities that are being made into medicines in many ways, right? They are bright, they are aromatic, right? There is a physiological response to them, even if that's not sort of a therapeutic response necessarily as we would currently think about it, right? Drinking that tincture is probably evoking a physiological response due to its sugar or its alcohol content or, you know, its taste, its bitterness, right? A lot of these roots and things are very bitter. They burn the throat or if they're applied on the skin, right, they'll blister you. They'll cause you to write another common drug that's made into medicines at this time is Ipecac, right, which we know makes you vomit then as now, right? So some of these effects are transhistorical, but I think it really boils down to desperation that people are looking for ways to prolong their lives of themselves, their families, of others they care about. And a lot of these things elicit a bodily response. And it's difficult to put ourselves into the shoes of an early modern patient and A, thinking about sort of the hierarchies that constitute the practitioner-patient sort of relationship but also to put ourselves in the shoes in terms of sort of the mind-body connection and sort of this sort of physiological response to these medicines. But there definitely is something going on there. And it's also rooted right in desperation of the time. Right. So do you get, let's say, letters or so of people who are contemplating whether to take this medicine or that medicine and kind of like arguing for or against this new type of medicine? Is that something that exists? I mean, it's difficult. I mean, a lot of that also depends on, right, so the vagaries of the archive. It's really rare to see someone ruminating on what medicine to take. I mean, you know, you can see East India Company officials, plantation owners sort of corresponding with merchants over sort of what's fresh, what's cheap, you know, what they should order for the next season. But because a lot of these transactions, right, of walking into a pharmacy or something uh, at the time, you know, are ephemeral, right? It's difficult to find sort of that kind of personal rumination. But I have read things of people in colonial North America, right, deciding that a doctor prescribes a certain preparation and they say, no, I'm more comfortable with something else that doesn't actually adhere to this sort of new way of thinking about, right, disease in the body. So it really does fundamentally remain a personal decision, at least for those, as you mentioned before, Lee, 
who have the freedom and the ability to have a choice, right? Sort of overdosing, overordering, really strong medicines that sort of purge the body become the norm in these plantation societies. But also many others, right, are able to. And I think a lot of it is the ease of access, right? The sort of the commercializing medical marketplace and the ability to go someplace and buy something that will allegedly you know, remove some sort of ailment from you, right? That's a new thing. And I think that we can't discount, right, sort of the appeal of that sentiment. So just a really quick follow-up, do we have advertisements for these kind of medicines? And do these doctors, practitioners, apothecaries, companies, do they advertise in, let's say, newspapers or so on? Yeah, certainly, right? They have all sorts of advertisements. They sort of elicit testimonials. There's a broad spectrum of medicines here, right? We talk about the ones sort of made on site, quack medicines and I'm not going to get into that here, but yeah, there's a range of advertising materials that take advantage of sort of the flourishing print culture of the era. A lot of it depends on personal connections too, as we were talking about for long distance trade, right? If you're the sort of big physician in a small town in colonial New England, right? People are going to buy your stuff. So also that plays into it. So as we get toward the end of the episode, I want to maybe circle back to some of the topics we talked about at the beginning, but also in light of COVID, which is often what we do. So in a sense, you're showing us a massive change in medicine, life, really, I guess we could say. And one thing that struck me, at least, was you know, how much of this, as you pointed out, when it comes to different people of different backgrounds, how much social factors, for example, were not counted in whether or not a medicine worked or not. So does that play a role at all in, you know, the dropping out of social factors at various points in time, even, you know, up to today when it comes to, say, epidemiology and various other ways in which very often how human beings react and think is left out of models? Certainly. I think sort of my point earlier about this sort of take this for that approach, right, this sort of more standardized approach as being anomalous historically or sort of the shorter historical duration, I think is something that plays into these sort of normative expectations of how the ideal body type will respond, right, in clinical trials to particular medications, right, thinking about these. And then what happens when certain people don't, right, thinking about sort of the racialization that are surround, right, pulse oximeters, lung capacity. There's really interesting scholarship being done now about sort of the intergenerational legacy of the trauma of transatlantic slavery and American plantation slavery, sort of from an epigenetic and then into sort of a genetic inheritance for African-Americans. So, you know, there's a lot of ways, both sort of culturally, socially, as well as even potentially genetically, that these social factors, right, lead to these different health outcomes. But also, your question, Meryl, also gets me thinking about a larger challenge that historians of medicine, right, have to think about is the fact that, right, we're talking about disease, we're talking about the human body, we're talking about things that you know, scientists and people today, right, take as sort of ahistorical, as unchanging, right? And so it's a challenge, it's the work of historians, right, and others working in these similar fields to give these things a history, to show how sort of conceptions of the human body, conceptions of disease, conceptions of what medicines should and can do, right, these things change over time, they have a history. And thinking of them as not having that, as somehow being sort of set in stone, a historical right that also 
helps to, and I say help in quotation, right? It works to sort of devalue these social and cultural factors that play a role in health outcomes. Okay, so right as before we finish, maybe we can finish with one of the questions that we tend to ask relatively frequently. And again, it's about the connection to COVID. So is there anything COVID has taught us that we can do to kind of push back onto these ideas? Yeah, I think there's really two things I would say. One is that it has, I see sort of in the popular discourse surrounding COVID, right? It really has shined a light on the close connections, right? Between commerce and medicine, right? Which is a big part of my research. And I think sort of foregrounding that debate, whether it's in sort of healthcare or with regard to the particular crisis, I think is an important one for everyone to think about. And also sort of seeing these discourses, it's been reaffirming to me that we are thinking about the history of differential health outcomes, right? We are starting to talk about these social, environmental, cultural factors that do influence mortality rates, morbidity rates, health outcomes. And I think that's something, you know, looking forward that it would be really productive to hang on to as we move into, right, a sort of post-COVID crisis period, whatever that looks like. Yes, and I think that on that point of looking forward to a post-COVID world, which I hope gets here as quickly as possible, we can wrap up this interview. So I'd like to thank you again, Zach, for coming on the podcast and talking to us about your research. Thank you very much. Uh, it was a pleasure to be here. And I would just like to add as someone who's one of his first jobs is working on a lab bench at New England Biolabs. This is truly a delight. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much, Zach. Really appreciate it. So I really enjoyed talking to Zach about his work and his book in particular, because the story he traced out is what I think is really some of the best work that historians do, which is they make you sit up and realize that they've outlined an actually very, quote unquote, obvious story, as I said to him, you know, that it used to be X and now it's Y. But in fact, no one's actually figured out how or why this change happens. And that's really what his work shows that I thought was really so neat and so delightful. Right. And I think that's an interesting point when we consider what the role of historians actually is, right? I mean, trying to explain, as you said, something that used to be X, now it's Y. I would say that it's interesting. It definitely would be more attractive than some of the other types of work we historians sometimes end up doing. And this may be part of, of Zach's more public facing work. Yeah, I think that's a really good point and, you know, really connects a lot of his work very clearly with modern contemporary ideas of globalization and of medicine. And maybe, Lee, you won't hate the early modern period as much anymore. No, it's again, it's a period in which lots of stuff is happening. But then again, it still seems difficult to me to connect stuff that's happening in like, let's say, 1450 to stuff that's happening in, let's say, 1830. It just looks like a completely different world. In a sense, that's very different from what we see, let's say, in antiquity or the Middle Ages. But to bring things back on topic, I thought that in the interview, one of the things that was striking to me, at least, was the way in which Zach kept on talking about all these roots of modern practices and realities. And here, 
once we compare this to what we saw in earlier episodes, other interviews of people working on earlier periods, again, the Middle Ages, antiquity, here things seemed much more recognizable. I mean, this world that he was talking about, world with companies and regulations and practitioners and medicine, that definitely seemed much closer than anything earlier we've encountered on this podcast. Yeah, no, that's definitely correct, right? That you have the state and what the state does. And my joke about Amazon, right, for example, reflecting, you know, problematic regulations even then, which is not to say that these didn't happen earlier, but that it seems much more similar to us, I think. Yeah, and to me, one of the other things that resonated was this entire debate about personalized or depersonalized medicine, right? So he actually traced the beginning of this process of medicine becoming something much more depersonalized than personalized earlier on. Like this one-on-one encounter between you as a patient and your practitioner, the person who is supposed to take care of you. So this starts to change, I guess, over the 18th century. And that continues to change until today. And medicine, in a sense, is becoming more and more depersonalized. And you could argue that there are efforts being made to try to personalize medicine, but it's still very different than the ways in which medicine was practiced earlier on in antiquity and the Middle Ages. Yeah, and of course, the irony here is that we're kind of, in some senses, returning to attempts to be more personal, right? That each person does have particular things within their body, within themselves, that we should try to personalize treatments more. Obviously, there's questions of wealth and class and race and lots of other topics involved in this, but that's something that at least I think there's a recognition of now. So do you feel that the medicine you're receiving, I mean, the the care you're receiving is personalized? Because I can say I do not. I don't think I've ever felt any personal treatment from any person who ever treated me. I think it depends on what kind of doctor you have and how you find a doctor and whether or not that's even a possibility for you, right? This is a longer question about healthcare and how it's delivered in various countries. But for example, you know, my father-in-law is an optometrist. And so whenever I've moved and need a new optometrist, I always ask him for suggestions and the people he comes up with are always terrific. And I always feel like that care, even though if it might not actually be but it feels much more personal because he makes sure he gets much more personal and personable doctors for me. But again, that's why I said there's questions of race, class, gender, wealth, et cetera here. The other thing I thought that was actually pretty interesting that's obviously still ongoing is how do you convince people to take a medicine, right? I mean, you asked this specifically, but it's obviously still a question during COVID, right? People are choosing not to take the vaccine. Yeah. And one of the answers, I guess, would be advertisements, right? So advertisements back then, as Zach was telling us, advertisements until today, that would be one way. Another way would be to coerce people into taking medicine. And I guess that was, in a sense, I guess, easier to do earlier on, at least with unfree people back then. Although I can say that here in Israel, people have been feeling, or some people at least, have been feeling coerced to take the COVID vaccine specifically. So I guess that's still something that's going on. The last thing I thought he mentioned at the end there was about, you know, social factors and their importance during COVID, which is, you know, something we've addressed in this podcast from the beginning, right? That there's disparities in who's getting COVID. But I wonder, and I do have some hope here, and I think I've 
expressed this before, that at least the recognition of it is a first step. Obviously, it takes political will from there, but that the recognition being so early in the discourse was a positive sign. I mean, yes, it's a positive sign, but at the end of the day, it's not new, right? I mean, understanding that social factors determined outcome was something that we knew before COVID. So kind of relearning it for COVID, it's important, I guess, but it's not shocking or anything like that. No, but I think how much it's talked about in the discourse in the general newspapers and how much it's focused on, at least in the United States, I can't speak for Israel, is new, right? Because, you know, I think you had certain groups and certain political views that always viewed that as the case and other groups refusing. And I think even groups now on the right, for example, they no longer seem to refuse that that's the case. They don't want to necessarily sometimes do anything about it. But I think everyone at least recognizes that it's a problem. And so I think that's a major step in and of itself is what I'm saying. Right. So here, as I said in previous episodes here in Israel, that is, discourse is very different and we don't think about that at all. And that makes me think that if I'm looking at the United States, the COVID experience, I think, overlaps with both Black Lives Matter and the George Floyd entire episode protests and so on that happened. And it's difficult to disentangle both those events. Yeah, although I'll say, remember, we did have Fuchsia and Michelle on this podcast in April before George Floyd was murdered. So in a sense, it was already known about enough that we realized that this was a topic we wanted to talk about with people. Yeah, it exploded on the scene, though, right after, right after George Floyd, I think. That's when it really became mainstream and COVID was increasing at the same time. Mortality went up. So it drew much more attention. I mean, again, there was nothing new there, right? It's not a new argument to be made, but it definitely entered public discourse in the United States, at least in, in a much more prominent form. That's fair. So maybe, Lee, with that discussion of uh, American discourse, have you been watching anything new on TV that you would recommend? Or would you recommend anything that our listeners don't view? Yes. So actually, I have. I have watched, I think, the first couple of episodes of Shadow and Bone, which is a new series. I'm not sure I would recommend this. I mean, I guess they want the series to be as popular as possible. But one of the issues I had was that it falls into this category of, of young adult, right? So young adult content, which I guess is a way to try to maximize the demographics you're creating content for. But to me, it seems... It just seems pretty bland and falls into all these standard tropes, which I've seen on multiple young adult series and so on and in other cases. So even though actually, when you think about it, the world in that series is, I guess, some kind of early modern world, right? That's at least what it seems after watching two episodes. But uh, the young adult part is a problem for me at this point. Maybe I'm no longer a young adult. I think that's the issue. Lee. I mean, I think you always talk about how you have no time to do anything, which is fair. You're teaching a lot and you have a young daughter. But why did you choose that show as your quote unquote relaxing show? It had a nice trailer. It seemed to have a nice story. The world they built was convincing and seemed interesting. But again, the plot was less interesting, let's say. What about you, Merle? Have you been watching anything? The Mandalorian season six or something? No, the one thing I've been watching 
with my wife these days is Top Chef, which was filmed in Portland, Oregon in the fall, I assume. So has that replaced the Bachelorette as like the, what you guys watch together? Well, the Bachelorette has to start up again, Lee. You gotta know the timing of these shows, please. But in any case, yeah, that's the show we've been watching. It's a reality TV cooking competition show. And it's a bit surreal because again, this was filmed months ago and airs longer, right? Because they have to edit it and such. And so the stage of COVID in which they're at is just very different than June. I imagine in Portland, but certainly here. So maybe you can try to explain to me, right? So these people are cooking stuff and then judges are like tasting that stuff and deciding who like passes to the next stage or something, right? But that's inherently different from other TV shows. I mean, the music reality shows, right? In which you get to experience the song yourself, right? You get to experience and say, this person is singing well, or this person is singing better than the other person. Here, you're missing as a viewer, right? You're missing on so much of the experience, right? You're just like looking at other people cook food and like a different set of people eat that food. Yes, that's always the critique of food shows that I've heard. But I would also say when it comes to singing shows, once you get past, you know, the really bad people, so I'm using American Idol as my example here, you know, where people come on who clearly can't sing. I can't tell the difference between the last 20 people or whatever, right? Who's singing better and who's singing worse. That's like the judges. And then they like let people vote, which I would never vote because how would I be able to tell? It's a popularity contest, obviously. So to my mind, there's no difference between 20 chefs cooking something I can't eat, but doing it creatively and at least describing it to me and 20 people singing in a way that I can't tell the difference between the 20 people singing anyways. Have you ever tried to cook something from Top Chef? No, because they cook like <laughs> insane meals <laughs> that have like crazy ingredients. I mean, this is not a show for amateur cooks. There are ones that, you know, are more amateur like that I've watched from time to time. But Top Chef is also a known show pedigree that follows a certain series of rituals that I find very enjoyable. Okay, so I guess that on this note, we can probably conclude the episode and maybe give Merle some time to go watch his next episode of Top Chef. But before that, we would like to thank our sponsors, both the Hebrew University in Jerusalem and the LePage Center for funding the podcast, and our sound editor, Amitai Bailavi, and our webmaster, Berda Kanati. Until next time, stay safe, stay socially distanced, and maybe write us with the suggestion of something else Lee should spend his time watching. <laughs> <laughs>